We'll hear argument now in number uh, 9729, Texas versus the United States. Mr. Aguilar. Mr. Chief Justice, it may please the court. The temporary appointment of a master or a management team with limited powers to assist school districts that are not achieving the academic goals set by the state is not a change with respect to voting, but rather it is a temporary change with respect to governance. More precisely, such an appointment does not result in the de facto replacement of the elected school board. A review of the statute, which you can find at pages 90A through 92A of the jurisdictional statement appendix, shows that the board members, uh, excuse me, shows that the master and the management team uh, have very limited powers. They cannot take any action concerning any type of district election. Uh, They cannot take any action with regard to the number of board members to be elected or the method of selecting the board member. That is, they can't change uh, from from, uh, uh, single-member districts to at-large districts to cumulative voting, which is available to them under the uh, Education Code. They may not set a tax rate for the district. They cannot adopt adopt a budget that's different than the one that the school board members themselves have uh, voted for and adopted. If all that is true, Mr. Aguilar, then you have no problem. I just go ahead and do it. And, that is and, and, correct, uh, Ron. Uh, that's, so that's, why are you here? We're here because, in fact, when this legislation was passed, uh, we submitted all of the amendments to the Education Code, both those that affected voting and those that didn't. We just presented that with all of them. We did not identify these provisions as being election-related. The Department of Justice, the Attorney General, informed us that they believed that they were and requested us to submit further information. That they they were were always or or could be? Well, that they believed that might be, I think, more more appropriately stated. Mm -hmm. So we answered their questions, thinking that once we provided them with answers to their questions, that they would agree with us that, in fact, they were not election-related. Well, that is not what happened, Justice Scalia. They, in essence, uh, pre-cleared the provisions, and I'm talking about... Uh, they're, they're unwilling to say that none of these, uh, none of these might not be. They're unwilling to say, well, I guess what they're saying is that they believe, since they pre-cleared them as enabling legislation, that they, uh, once we actually put them into effect in those situations when we need them in a, uh, to, to utilize them, well, that they will is result... Is that what it means? I mean, I, I, I interpret that to mean there is nothing in this enabling legislation in and of itself that's bad. And we just don't want to say right now uh, whether, uh, as it is later implemented, something might be bad, which seems to me a, a sober thing for the Justice Department to do. Well, Your Honor, we, we would probably do the same thing when a case is brought before us. We don't rush into, the, into things we don't have to decide. You, you ask them to clear this statute, and they say, statute's okay with us. It's just enabling legislation. Well, we, we didn't ask them to... We, we went ahead and provided them with the information they requested. We did it, if you will, under protest. We, we informed them that we did not think these were election-related. We tried to make the argument, and we did make the argument, as to why we thought it wasn't. I think well, the statute Mr. Aguilar, I share Justice Scalia's concerns. You want us to say that never, under any circumstance, under any implementation, could this be covered under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. That's correct. And uh, it isn't even right. It hasn't been implemented. Seems to me that's all the Attorney General is saying. And like Justice Scalia, what prevents the state of Texas from just going ahead and implementing it? If somebody thinks there's a problem, they'll file a suit. And in addition, even if, if, if the district 
court here were to say, fine, I don't see a problem, it wouldn't bind private parties. They could always file a suit after implementation. I mean, I don't know why you're here. We're here, Your Honor, because we believe that the statute as written and as limited by Provision E on page 91A, uh, in essence, passes that bright line test that this court established in Presley. Well, there is no way, there is no, I'm sorry, just. You, you, you began by, by reciting many of the things the trustees can do. One of the things the trustees can do is to appoint an, uh, other people to exercise all of the power of the Board of Trustees uh, under uh, subsection 9, as I understand that is the correct. master can appoint a board of managers composed of residents that exercises all the powers and duties of the board of trustees. Uh, that, that's not correct, Justice Kennedy. The, the commissioner under that's subdivision not. nine, the commissioner under subdivision nine, is the one that can appoint a board of managers. And we did not challenge provisions nine and ten. We are not here today uh, suggesting that that is that is does not fall within uh, section five. Uh, we have no quarrel with, with uh, uh, the Attorney General's assessment with regard so, to... So you plan. would submit uh, to the Attorney General uh, for preclearance any proposal to uh, invoke the powers under 9 and 10? Under 9 and 10, we would submit them. Under 9, I think that's where you have a de facto replacement because, in fact, the commissioner has the authority to select members of the school, I mean, uh, citizens of the school district, residents of the school district, on, uh, and appoint them as board of managers to replace the elected board, and they'll have all the power of the board. I think that is more in keeping with what this court had in mind in Presley with regard to the reference to a de facto uh, a replacement. But under no circumstance uh, can that happen under number seven and eight, because the legislature has gone out of its way to define away the problem, if you will, to make sure that it took it out of the, uh, the, the coverage of Section 5 by allowing them to have authority. Help me just a little bit on, on why seven and eight don't raise the same problem. Because there is, read 7 and 8 against the E over on 91A about all the things the management team and the master can do. They can direct any action to be taken. They can direct any action to be taken. Uh, the reason, let me, let me back up, start at the beginning, Justice Stevens. The reason a master or a management team are needed is because there are severe problems with the school district. Uh, for instance, they, they have schools, any number of that's schools that are... That's true of 9 and 10. That's correct, but we're not arguing 9 and I'm 10. I'm really trying to ask you to explain why... You take one position on 9 and 10 and another position on 7 and 8. Because no, 10 is easy, I think. Uh, that's an annexation. We don't have any quarrel with the fact that that falls within Section 5. 9, I think, uh, falls within the caveat in Presley about, about uh, uh, de facto replacement. I think that probably satisfies what this Court had in mind. But 7 and 8, that is not a de facto replacement, and that's the only thing we're talking about, possibly uh, being a reason for it falling within Section 5, because the... Uh, legislature has said in the limitations found in subdivision E that there are certain things that the master management team cannot touch. For instance, setting of the tax rate, or the amount of money that no, citizens... That, but number one under E is may direct an action to be taken by the principal of a campus, the superintendent of the district, or the board of trustees. Well, they tell the board of trustees what to do. Well, they, they can tell the board of trustees what to do with regard to solving the problem and issue. That is correct, Your Honor. Then, why is that it is, different from nine? That's what I don't... Right because there. of the limitations, they cannot... If, if we conceive of the authority of the, uh, of the elected board members as being a pie, we're not taking the entire pie away from them the way we are in A9, 
we may be taking a portion of weight, but we're never going to take all of it away. They still make decisions with regard to how much total money is spent, how much money is raised, and anything having to do with elections, whether it be bond elections. I, I just don't read the statute that way when it says you may direct under seven, that they may direct an action to be taken by the board of trustees. I, I would say you spend the money for the high school, not the elementary school, or vice versa. Well, that is, you're right with regard to the allocation of the total amount of the budget. You're right, Your Honor. I mean, the master or the management team, in order to solve the problem, it may be that the problem is that they're not spending money appropriately in certain programs in order to get the, the school kids to pass their reading and their math exams that they have to take every year from grades three to eight. And so they'll direct it. Maybe they ought to emphasize that aspect and spend money on those programs and perhaps teachers in those programs. But they, are, they still don't have the entire pie, if you will. They still don't have all the authority of the board because they can't touch elections. They cannot set the ultimate level of expenditures. For instance, if the school board says that the budget for next year will be $50 million, the board, uh, the, excuse me, the master of the management team can't go in there and require them to increase the budget or decrease the budget. That is something that state law has given and this provision but, but reserves too. But the, the uh, manager or master could require that the budget items be reallocated? Uh, yes, Your Honor. They have to in order to be able to solve the problem. If, if, in fact, the problem uh, is the result of, of, of misguided, if you will, management in terms of not spending the money appropriately, they're spending too much money in, in, in athletics and not in much money, as much money on reading and writing and arithmetic, well, then they, they have the authority to say you've got to direct more money to these essential items in order for you all to meet the state standards with regard to passage rates on the achievement test. Yes. Could they order one school to bus children to another school? I beg your pardon? Could they order busing from one school? No, they cannot. No, they cannot. Any money? Why not? Well, because that be if they're under a court order to bus, no, no, uh, they no, cannot I, in any way uh, they cannot in any way interfere with that. I mean, just voluntarily adopt a program. We want to reallocate the students between two schools. Say, and just say we want to bus the third grade over here and the fourth grade back here. So they, well, I, you know, sometimes they're. I, I guess do do I can't concern think, themselves with where the children will go to school. Right. I don't think. Uh, it's possible that, that's, that 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 could happen if, in fact, there's some uh, reason to do that. In other words, in order to solve the problem that has them there to begin with. But, but uh, ordinarily, no, they wouldn't. They wouldn't but, do that. But right. it's fairly speculative. Some of these answers. The Texas courts haven't interpreted these provisions, have they? No, they have not, Your Honor. So that just just what the law does permit uh, the the masters to do uh, is really not, not clearly established. Well, I think that what they can do is limited, is limited by the problem at hand and how they go about solving the creativity of trying to solve that problem. But that's not, that's not where we, that's not the argument we're relying on. The argument we're relying why on. Why wouldn't raising more money be? Is, is that explicitly excluded? That is excluded under E6, yeah. uh, uh, may not adopt the budget for the district, that's on page 92A that provides for spending a different amount, exclu exclusive or required debt service, from that previously adopted by the Board of Trustees. What I was trying to say was that we believe that the statute, when reviewed, clearly shows that we're not dealing with uh, Section 5 coverage regarding changes in the manner of voting, the candidacy requirements, the composition of the electorate, the creation or abolition of, of an elected office. And indeed, the Attorney General's sole basis uh, for the preclearance as enabling legislation was the issue of de facto replacement. 
It's our position that this statute clearly shows that we can never even get to that point. Mr. Ivanov, this, this is a rather novel procedure as far as I know. Has there been any other case where a state or covered jurisdiction has sought to sort of jump the gun this way by bringing a non-coverage claim in the D.C. District Court? No, Your Honor, and I think there's a good reason for that. Uh, prior to 1992, before this court established its bright line test between what is a change with respect to voting, what is a change with respect to governance, I don't think there really was a good a good understanding. Anything that affected voting in any way, I believe, is the way I would un- I would characterize the pre-92 law, would be covered by by Section 5. I think the bright line test laid down by this court in Presley in 92 gave us the opportunity and gave the legislature the opportunity to say, well, how can we affect these uh, these uh, uh, provisions and make sure that they're utilized quickly when necessary without having to go through the preclearance route because it's really not their intention to have any effect on, on elections. Mr. And- Mr. Aguilar, um, what, um, this taking over the operations of the board is, is sort of an in extremist remedy, isn't it? It's, it's, it's the last step. Nine and ten are the last steps. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, well, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. You're right. Nine and ten are taking over in, in your estimation. Uh, what, what the government contends might, in some circumstances, be a taking over, replacing the board with, uh, 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 with, with, a, with a director as to certain issues. That only comes after, after other remedies have, have tried and been failed, right? That is correct. There's six, six or seven of them? There's six of them listed on page 98, a public notice of the deficiency, yeah. the first one. second one is having a hearing right. conducted by the board. I mean, there, there are a lot of other interventions, if you will, not as draconian you, as nine and ten. Right. Draconian is the word, and, and, and you, you would hope, I expect, never, have to, never to have to use that, wouldn't you? We would hope that, that the school boards... And we believe that the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of elected school board members of all 1,056 school boards in Texas are dedicated to making sure that their school districts right. meet the standards that the so. state has... Res- well, I guess would, you say for sure, would you say for sure that you know that in at least one case you're going to have to take over? Well, indeed, you have. Well, Texas has in one case. We have not, in one case. We have some evidence of that. that. We made mention of the fact of the Wilmer Hutchins Independent School District. Wait, where can we, you we, tell us what, what, what were the powers that the master was directed to exercise in, 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 in this Dallas district? Well, if I may go outside the record, I certainly can, can, can answer that question. Uh, basically, the, master, uh, the management team went in to try to... Uh, on the one hand, increase the pass rate and dropout rate for certain schools in that district, and on the other hand, make well, sure was that the, the master directed to exercise powers one through seven or one through nine, or was it that specific? There's, we're talking about this lodging that the uh, solicitor general made with us just a few days ago, where the special master was in fact appointed for this district near Dallas or in Correct. Dallas County, and I want to know. Was the master appointed, and was he specifically directed to exercise statutory powers uh, that were specifically listed uh, under A1 A through 10? No, uh, uh, Justice Kennedy, that's not the way it works. He, he would, the commissioner was authorized to appoint the master under A7. And then under A7, the powers that he can appoint are circumscribed or limited under E. In other words... They have the authority to go in and fix the problem. Well, was he specifically appointed under A7 and not under A8? That is my recollection, yes. 
there's no other way that you can appoint the master, Your Honor, under, under our scheme. Uh, it certainly wasn't an A9. It was not a board of managers. And so it's A7 that deals with, with the appointment of a master. Could, could you, uh, before you finish, explain how you got into this court? Uh, as, I, as I read the, the statute, it says uh, when a, uh, a state, uh, based, paraphrasing it, when a state enacts or administers a measure that affects voting, then the state can go to the special three-judge court and ask for a declaration that it doesn't affect voting in a racially discriminatory way. Well, you're saying this is a measure that doesn't affect voting. So if you think it's a measure that doesn't affect voting, how did you get into this court? How, how can you say to the court, we invoke your jurisdiction because uh, we have a measure here that we think affects voting, uh, but we want you to say it doesn't affect voting? Yes, just how, how do you get into the court on that kind of a theory? Let me, let me explain. We got into the court because we were pre-cleared, if you will, against our will because we didn't think these measures, 7 and 8, were uh, affecting voting. The Attorney General basically told us that you've got to pre-clear any utilization of 7 or 8 before we can say anything about it, therefore putting us in the process, the Section 5 process. We think that that, that, that legal determination can be reviewed by a three-judge panel. Well, what, why? I mean, why, why can't... If you, you, maybe you have some regular declaratory judgment action. You could just go and file it. I don't know if you do or not, but I don't see how this... How you get within this statute on the theory that you don't affect voting. At least that's the trouble that I'm having. I don't see why a state... This seems to be a statute set up for states that believe they have measures that do affect voting, and they believe that those measures are not discriminatory. Honor, is there any authority or anything that a state... Well, no, as I answered, uh, uh, Justice O'Connor, we have no... There has, this has never been done before as far as we know. And what I mean by that is we don't know of an instance where a state has gotten a ruling from the Attorney General that a provision falls within Section 5 when the state believes, after applying Supreme Court precedent, that it is not part of Section 5. And that's why we... Right, so why wouldn't you think that the judges to the other side thinks it does affect voting? So you can understand why they wouldn't raise it. If you're a judge, you're the one who's invoking the court's jurisdiction. We're invoking the so court's you say, jurisdiction. So you judge, I want you to tell you something. We're here because we have a statute that affects voting. By the way, we don't. Well, I mean, on those circumstances, why wouldn't the judge say that the person who's invoked our jurisdiction concedes we don't have it? So the, we don't have to go further. The, what we did with the court below was we said that this is a Section 5 issue with regard to the coverage question. We believe that every preclearance action certainly comes with, it, comes with the, the predicate question of wh whether this is a change affecting voting. How do we get I around the statute's language? I mean, how do, my problem is how to get around the statute's language. Well, I think we're relying on this court's decision in Allen. This court was able to get around the statute's language and allow for private plaintiffs to file an action on the coverage question and then enjoin a covered jurisdiction from proceeding with the enactment. We're suggesting that the language and the rationale of Allen gives us the right to come before the three-judge panel in the district court of the District of Columbia in order to review an erroneous, what we believe, and with all due respect, is an erroneous deter legal determination with regard to the coverage question by the Attorney General. Mr. Aguilar, I think when I asked you the question, has a pure coverage action ever been brought before, you were candid and said no. But hasn't the coverage issue uh, been tied to uh, a routine Section 5 case where the district says, we don't think this racially discriminates. And moreover, we don't even think it affects voting. That kind of claim has been brought. Absolutely, Your Honor. We were involved in that kind of claim previously. There's, there's no question about that. Uh, 
what we're trying to, if we can the logic is if we are entitled to bring an action in the district court that raises both the predicate question and the question of purpose and effect then we believe that we also have under the logic of Allen the right to bring the issue, the coverage question only when we are in a situation where we have for lack of a better term been induced to get free clearance by the by the attorney general on an issue that we don't believe falls within on a, an enactment we don't believe falls within section 5 to begin with based on our reading of presley we believe that this court attempted to draw a distinction in presley between those enactments that respect voting and those that do not and we are attempting to bring to to this court and to the, the initially to the court below uh a declaratory judgment seeking a declaration that in fact the legal judgment of the attorney general with regard to the application of presley is incorrect but and why only couldn't you have waited till say the first case the first case comes up then you can do what is not uh, uncommon that is to say here's this case and what we want you to rule on this case you'll be able to see that under these whatever it is uh, seven and eight this is not simply not now but not ever so get get it the way the statute has worked so far well let, let me explain it this way your honor once we were pre-cleared as enabling then any t- if we were to ignore if we were to ignore their determination just say well we think they're wrong we're just going to go ahead and enact and just utilize this whenever we want to because there's no way it falls within section 5 in all likelihood we will either get sued by private plaintiffs or we'll get an enforcement action from the attorney general if we get sued by private plaintiff in all in all likelihood uh, let me we will lose on a- because there's, there's one thing you could have done you say okay we're going to be delayed a little the first time we do it but then we'll be home free so you could have brought the case the first time the first time you were contemplating whatever Oh, I see. Instead of opting, advantage of the expedited whatever that both the district court said it had and the attorney general. Well, if you're if you're saying that back at the time when we when we presented the entire education code and then identified those areas that were election related for preclearance that we should have that we should have taken this issue and gone to the District of Columbia. That no, I mean the first time that you you Excellent. have whatever you had in that district near Dallas. Oh, I'm sorry. The reason we didn't do that, Your Honor, was because we wanted to act quickly. We did not want to have to wait for a year or two to get a judicial resolution of whether this was a change affecting voting or whatever. And there, it, didn't and take, it didn't take a year or two, did it, in the case that we have? It took a few months. Uh, uh, with regard to preclearance of yeah. the Wilmer Hutchins, it took 90 days. And during that 90-day period of time, Again, I'm going out. Uh, well, actually, we, we mentioned this in our in our, uh, our briefing uh, in, before this court and in the court below. During that period of time, IRS and FBI agents were going and raiding the district offices because they, they suspected some financial uh, uh, goings on. We could not do anything as a state to reach in there and fix the problem so that the school children would have. The, the law moves slowly. I have never heard the argument before that a case is ripe because if I have to wait until it's really ripe, in order to litigate this issue, it's going to take a couple of years. I mean, that, that, that's not an argument that makes the case ripe now. Well, let me what is it that you were compelled to do by having to wait until one of these horribles actually happened in order to litigate it? Now, you know, something like in, in Abbott Labs, the drug company's primary conduct was immediately affected. 
They were put to the choice of either printing on the labels the, the ingredients uh, as, as the rule required or else being, being, uh, uh, being liable for, for an enormous amount of damages as, as well as penalties. Now, that's something very substantial. What does it cost you to wait until the, until the thing happens other than time? Well, federalism is ultimately our greatest concern, Justice Scalia. We believe that if these enactments are, if we're correct... And you think it's true, greater I, than individual freedom? I mean, I mean you're, you're, you're raising the federalism concern of the state, but that seems to me no different from the individual freedom concern of, of the private citizen who's affected by a rule. And the private citizen has to wait until the rule bites. Well, we're also concerned about... Well, our concern is with federalism. If we don't, if we don't fall within the purview of Section 5, then we should not have to incur the burdens of Section 5. Uh, we, we believe that this is a process where all we're asking... time and place to decide that, and this isn't the time. If Texas thinks they have a crisis in a school district and they're going to appoint a management team, then go ahead and do it if you're satisfied it isn't affecting voting. Do it. If the attorney general has a complaint, they'll file it. If some private individual has a complaint, they'll file it. I just don't see how, how Texas belongs here now. Well, Your Honor, if we were to do that, that's what I was trying to explain earlier. If we were to do that and just ignore what has happened uh, with us before the attorney general, then in all likelihood we would get, I think, uh, private litigation or, or, or private plaintiffs filing a lawsuit saying, wait a minute, you can't, you can't bring the master management team in because this is a change affecting voting and you haven't pre-cleared. And I think the first thing that will happen is in all likelihood we'll lose a preliminary injunction because, of course, the attorney general's judgments are accorded deference by the courts. And it will again delay the process that we're trying to institute. That is, well, quickly move when, in. When you did, when you did uh, apparently submit something to preclearance in the Dallas district, it took essentially a couple of months. The law says they have to act within 60 days, doesn't it? It took them 90 days, Your Honor. Uh, we, we, I personally phoned them and asked for, for them to expedite it. And in fact, we got on the 60th day more questions asked, and 30 days later we got we got a result. The fundamental. Our fundamental position is that when you apply Presley to this statute, to the words of this statute, we, we're of the opinion that it does not fall within Section 5 because it is, it's certainly not election-related. It certainly isn't the abolition or creation of an of a office. And finally, the only other thing it could be would be a de facto replacement. And what we're arguing is it can never be a de facto replacement because the state in the, in the, in the uh, provisions has reserved... Uh, enough, we believe, authority to the school board members. See, the school board continues to meet, continues to, uh, to debate, continues to vote on important items like tax rates, like school bond elections, like uh, uh, the amount of, of money to be spent on the school for the following years. Those are areas that our master management team don't have any authority for. So it is right from the perspective of we have a statute that needs to be interpreted. We have a wrong, and the wrong to us is an incorrect determination by the Attorney General that this falls within Section 5, seen through the prism of Presley, and the immediate impact on us is that it's a federalism one mixed up with the fact that there is delay in trying to get state processes that our legislature, elected by the people, wanted to put in place in order to strengthen our schools. Everybody's concerned with strong I don't see how waving the magic word federalism alters the rightness analysis. 
it, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that it magically alters it, Your Honor. I'm just saying that it is in the rightness analysis. You've got to consider the federalism concerns when there has been an incorrect determination that an enactment falls within Section 5 when, in fact, it doesn't. This court itself, and Presley and Allen and Katzenbach, all of those cases have been consistent in saying that Section 5 is a draconian measure. That was passed for good reason. We're not disputing that. But what we are saying is, with regard to these two provisions, if they do not fall within the rubric, within the, the coverage of Section 5, then we have a federalism issue here. The very same federalism issue that this Court has consistently uh, noted in all of these cases. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Aguilar. Uh, Mr. Wolfson, we'll hear from you. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, uh, for two reasons, uh, we think the District Court was not empowered to decide the merits of Texas' request for a declaratory judgment in this case. Uh, first, uh, as that court actually concluded, uh, the case was not ripe for a judicial decision in both the Article Three and the prudential senses of ripeness. And second, uh, the court, in our view, lacks statutory jurisdiction to decide this kind of case, which raises only the question of coverage of, under Section 5 and does not actually re uh, request preclearance. Uh, because the district court disposed of the case on rightness grounds, I'd, I'd like to turn to that uh, issue first. Mr. Wilson, before you do, I don't see that they're truly separate, because if you're right about rightness, then there can never be this kind of action, because when it's ripe, there will always be the actual. Right. I mean, I suppose, theoretically, if the state were actually, if were actually implementing one of these sanctions, and for some reason it wanted to go to the three-judge district court and say, well, we, you know, we really want you just to decide the issue on coverage. We, you know, we don't, because but we don't... Is that, isn't that extremely hypothetical? I mean, if you went and you've done it, or you've got the plan and you say, please, please clear, clear it as soon as you do, the moment you do, we'll do it. Why would you ever want to engage in that kind of I, I, hypothetical I don't, exercise? I don't think you, I mean, the only reason why I think you might is if there were evidence of discriminatory intent and you wanted to come outside of section 5 by saying that you didn't have to it wasn't covered it wasn't covered at all well, the I, reason I, the reason you'd want to do it is you don't want to have to play this game every time i mean are, are you taking the position that that even when there is a uh, an actual implementation of this plan in a certain district the the state of texas cannot come into the uh, uh, to the the dc district court and say we think this is okay because it is simply not a change in voting they can raise nothing under this statute is a change in voting. They can raise. I think that if they invoke the jurisdiction, well, they can they can raise that in the courts two ways. First of all, of course, they can actually implement it, and then and then uh, raise that as a defense if private party or a or the attorney general brings an action under Section Five in a local district court. But if they go, the way we read the statutory jurisdiction, if they go to the three judge court in the District of Columbia and they say, uh, if they invoke the jurisdiction of the court to for preclearance actions. They can also say, and we don't think that this is a change affecting voting, uh, so we don't, have to, we don't have to be here. But that's once they invoke the jurisdiction of the district court in a properly presented preclearance action. Uh, well, what, what about Allen? I mean, that certainly gave a broader construction of the of, of availability of an action under this statute than one might expect. I, I think that's true. I think that, uh, I think that there are factors Though in this in this situation, I mean, Allen relied on the relied on the notion that there was no other way, really, that a private party could. But how, what's that got to do with jurisdiction? The fact that there's no other way that a private party could do it. Well, in that case, Allen really was sort of an implied cause of action case. I think where the, uh, the court might not decide it on that on that way today. It might be 
viewed as an ex parte young type action or, or a section 1983 action since Maine against Thibodeau. But it, at that time, I think the court was saying there was subject matter jurisdiction under 1343 and there was an implied cause of action under section 5. And then the court said, well, looking at the statute as a whole, we think they need a three-judge well, court. Here we have... Wilson, uh, the Attorney General encouraged Texas to submit uh, this new law to it, to the Attorney General, for preclearance. And the Attorney General looked at the first six categories of sanctions and said, fine, that's not a problem. You can implement it. Now, could Texas have gone to the district court in the District of Columbia and said, as to the first six sanctions, look, we want to file this and get it determined right now. It's not an implementation of voting. Right. I, that would be a... Would that have... Would, would the court have had jurisdiction I to think do that? that? I, think pro, it, it, I think it might. I think that would be what we call a preclearance of an enabling, enabling legislation before... But that's what they're implement. arguing for Sections 7 and 8. I, I, I think, mean, I have trouble with your, juris, your no subject matter jurisdiction I think argument. Seven, Why can't the court just say it isn't right? And that's the end of it. I think... Well, the court did say it isn't right. And, and our view is that this court can... Why well, can't we? Can, I mean, I, I just... I think your subject matter jurisdiction argument is very troublesome. I'm, I'm certainly happy for the court to resolve the issue on, on rightness. I, I think that, I, I do think that if Texas, first of all, in terms of pre-clearing enabling legislation, we're not aware of any situation in which a covered jurisdiction has gone to the three-judge district court in the District of Columbia and asked for just enabling legislation to be pre-cleared before it's ever been implemented. And I think just you as in You can understand the state's concern. If the attorney general is going to take some extreme position, maybe not this attorney general, but someone in the future, and say that some absolutely innocent law in a Section 5 area nevertheless requires preclearance, why shouldn't the state be able to go to the district court here and say, look, this just doesn't implement it at all? Well, I, I mean, there are many occasions, there are many occasions on which, of course, parties want to have their rights adjudicated definitively, and there are even occasions in which the other side wouldn't wouldn't mind having that having that done determined yeah, by but the, the attorney general would right. be right in there opposing it because it's i'm i'm assuming a situation where the attorney general is taking a very unrealistic view of it right but but the fact is that in our in the system of the federal courts that we have the courts can't resolve a controversy in advance of, of uh, can't resolve a, a dispute like that in advance of a well, of a concrete case of controversy. But, you know, in Allen, the court found some way, they said this was the only way this could be done, even though it was a rather circular way. And that's not, that's yeah. not the case here. Well, why, I mean, why isn't it the case Well, here? there are, well, the, if the state really, if the state implements, if, if the state finds it necessary and then just, to go so uh, Justice O'Connor's okay. hypothesis. Right. Well, I, I mean, in Allen, though, there was a ripe controversy. I mean, I think that's a, an important difference. Yes, but uh, let's assume that the doctrine of ripeness would prevent many of these kinds right. of suits to, from being uh, brought. But you're saying not only is it not ripe, but the district court simply had no jurisdiction. And that, I think, is, is dubious under Allen. Well, I, again, I, I think that in terms of the district court's jurisdiction, there are a number of factors that one has to take into account. First, there is, it is a waiver of sovereign immunity problem. The court has to find an express waiver of sovereign immunity for a suit against the United States. And that, the, in Allen, the court didn't look at it that way. Explain that to me, because I had thought that in 702, the United States was waiving immunity for non-monetary claims on mass. But this is not, I think, Morris versus Grissett really resolves that this is not an Administrative Procedure Act type claim. And but it I has to fall within the, the waive, although 702 is in the APA, 
I didn't think it was limited to the APA. I think our view is that the, that this case has to be resolved only within the confines. The jurisdiction is only within the confines of Section 5 itself, and that it's it's really an exclusive but exclusive. That wasn't mechanism. that wasn't what was done in Allen. Well, in Allen. In Allen, in Allen the, the court went up to 1343. That's right, but again, that was, I mean, at that time, I think the court did not view actions against the states as, wa- as raising the same sovereign immunity concerns that, as it might now or as it does against suits against the United States. The only, the only basis for jurisdiction for this type of claim is Section 5 itself, and that, for the reasons we've given in our brief, that, that's, that's not, we don't find it to fall within Section well, 5. Mr. Wilson, as I understand it, even on your own argument, if they had gone into the D.C. court and said, we want preclearance. It's quite true. We asked for preclearance from the Attorney General, and we got it only, as it were, 90% of the way. We're coming in here, and we're asking for preclearance 100% of the way, i.e., with no such condition as this enabling legislation uh, condition on it. And by the way, we also don't think we're covered. On your theory, it seems to me they could have gotten exactly what they wanted if they had, in effect, come in and pleaded in that form. Well, if they were, I think, if they sought is, that. Am I right? Well, when, because you said, you know, if they come in and they ask for preclearance right. and then they say, as it were, as an afterthought, by the way, we don't think we're covered at all, uh, this, right. this, this declaratory issue may be taken up. So I take it on your view the court would have had jurisdiction if they had simply approached it in that particularly formal way. I think if they were doing that before the statute had ever been implemented or before there was ever any, in a situation where there was no expectation it would be implemented in the future, there would be a serious prudential ripeness concern there. I think it would be the same. No, but I'm talking about jurisdiction. Right. I think that... I mean, the statutory jurisdiction. Right. I think that that probably would be within statutory jurisdiction. Well, then why isn't the statutory jurisdictional argument here then one of pure formality? The only thing that they failed to do on your theory, is to precede their request for this declaration with a statement in the form, please pre-clear this. I think, well, I think that what it reflects is that they didn't pre-clear it because, they didn't ask for pre-clearance because, I mean, I can't speak for the state, obviously, why they didn't request pre-clearance, but that, that, that they knew they weren't going to, they knew that it wasn't going to be done immediately, and so there was nothing to pre, there was no implementation of it. didn't ask for it because it might have been granted. Uh, th- this case well, does right, differ from, uh, is the same as Allen in this respect. Just as we said as in Allen, there's no other way to get this. There is really no other way to be sure what you're going to get is a declaration that none of these things are within the act. Right, but I don't think... Because if they ask for pre- pre-clearance, if I were a district judge, I would say, why should I bother my brains about this? Uh, at least in this instance, it's okay. I, I, why do I have to reach the, uh, the more general question? And that'll happen every time one of these uh, specific uh, uh, requests for pre- preclearance is given. The state can never be assured that that case will be decided by the court on the basis that this is simply not a voting change. Well, th- that may be, but I don't think, I mean, but the, the section is designed principally for preclearance, for, for preclearance actions. And I don't think this is really somewhat hypothetical, but if the state did bring such an action, and got preclearance. I don't think the state could complain about that. I mean, they couldn't appeal a judgment pre-clearing, no. uh, pre-clearing no, legislation. That's, that's the worst it, part of it. And then no, they'll have to re- pre-clear every other it wouldn't one be, It that. wouldn't be the worst part of it because then they would have a defense to any action brought, brought by a private party in a local free, in a local district court. How can they make a judge 
advert to the issue that they want to bring us I don't think here. they can. There's no way they can. I don't can. think they can. I do want to turn... Maybe just before, one yeah. quick second. Is, is it possible that, uh, assume they don't want to plead it, I mean, the way that we want them to plead it, which is in the alternative, in which case they'd come in. But suppose they do just, just want to be sure they're going to get a non-coverage. Is, can they bring an ordinary declaratory judgment action in an ordinary court? I don't think so. Why I think not? That the, it's, I think that Section 5 is... Well, I mean, well, I think that Section 5 is really exclusive and that they, they can't just proceed to a... I, mean, I don't think they could proceed to a single district judge uh, in, a, in district court under the Declaratory Judgment Act because I think that Section... Really, the only way the Section of coverage five, can be raised are those... The jurisdiction of Section 5 is to grant preclearance of changes in affecting voting. If your argument is there is no change... Why couldn't you bring that action to a single district yeah, judge? Right. I think that the, our, our view is that Section 5 really is exclusive. Is the, it's exclusive as to changes, but is it exclusive as to claims that there are no changes, by the district itself, that no change has taken place? I think that, I think that it's, it's the only, it sets forth the ways in which one can have this. What you're saying is if it's exclusive, then there's no forum at all for no, no, no. that kind of an I mean, action. It can be raised... It Only if be, they allege they're making a change. It, ha, it, had, it can be raised if they bring preclearance. I mean, a similar case is probably City of Lockhart, where I believe the, the city argued, they both argued for preclearance, and they also said it's not a change. In other words, it, they argued it wasn't, it's a little bit different than this because they weren't arguing it didn't affect voting, but they argued it wasn't a change from the previous uh, there, in that case, it was initiated court. by the city. I don't remember. Yes, it was a it was a preclearance action in the in the district court of right. the district of And this court, although this court found it was a change, it did it did examine it. The, the lower court did, and this court did examine it on direct appeal. I, I think that it is uh, this is a very unusual uh, statutory provision. There's no doubt about it. But Congress wanted these questions to be brought. I think within the Section 5 confines. Well, are you saying then that under Lockhart, if the, if the three-judge court in a Section 5 action uh, can examine whether or not there was in fact a change, uh, can it also examine whether or not in fact the change affected voting? The three-judge court can, yes. And the similar case is the other Texas case uh, that was... So done. then there isn't any jurisdictional barrier here. Well, no, but in both of those cases, there was an actual preclearance action brought. It, it was a classic preclearance action brought in the three-judge court where the state was actually, or the city in Lockhart, the state in Texas, was actually do, implementing something, and they well, argued in well, the alternative, what, what, if you will, that... What, what if the state simply wants, and this question has been asked before, but I, I'm not sure I know your answer... What if the court simply wants a declaration that these changes they've made do not affect voting? I don't think that, that, that there is jurisdiction for just that. Well, sir, under the declaratory, if, if Section 5 doesn't afford it, and, and uh, then why, why can't you go into a single-judge district court? Well, first of all, that's definitely not, I mean, that's definitely not what was done in this case. No. And so, and so the, the question in this case is whether the three-judge court had, had jurisdiction and that would bring it to this court under the mandatory direct appeal procedure. Uh, uh, but... Whether or not it could have been brought well, in a three-judge... The, the government never made the argument in the district court that it's making here. That's it? correct. I mean, we... So we, the, this we, whole, the, your whole argument is kind of novel. Well, we, 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 did, we did, but the district court did itself raise doubts as to whether it properly had statutory jurisdiction. And this court has, on other occasions, itself examined whether there was a statutory basis for jurisdiction. But it's just so unlikely that we'd 
end up with a situation where uh, a state wants a, dec uh, a declaration that the law it passed does not affect voting and to be told there is no forum in which to get that resolved. That is no, a very there is, odd I, I, position to take. I guess our position is the state can get that resolved when it is, when it is, it can actually implement the change and require somebody to come in, in effect, and challenge that. Well, that, that was the law before they had declaratory judgments about lots of right. things that you just had to wait. But, but since the declaratory judgment action, that's no longer true. But I, I, I do want to, I just want to say that, I mean, it's not the case that the state has no forum in which its argument can be tested. Well, are, you, are you saying that the district is well advised to just go ahead and appoint its master and wait to be sued? Is I think that, that, that is an option. That's that they're, they're liable we, for attorney's fees if they're wrong, I take we it? We might. Are yes, they liable for might. attorney's fees if they're wrong? I believe that under, yes, they are. If a are, private are, are, the, are, the, are the contracts and the decisions and the directions that the special master has given to the district before the uh, litigation is terminated now at risk? These contracts are void or voidable, I take it? I, I, I'm not sure. You're advising this district to go ahead and implement a Section 7 provision without getting preclearance. Well, they can also, they can also ask for preclearance, and we, we did preclear both in the city of New York. Yes, case, you asked them about six pages of questions. And, and city of uh, Memphis. And once we asked the questions, then we, well, once we asked questions, then we expeditiously uh, precleared it. They can also go to the three-judge court in the District of Columbia and say, we need to do this, we need to do this right away. Please resolve this issue promptly, and also please resolve it on the, on the question of whether it's coverage, and that is open to the district court, although as I... You don't think the district court could act any faster. They'll, certainly you'd come in and say, we want the answer to these questions so we can decide whether to oppose it. I, You're I, certainly not going to apply it I, mean, I do think that the Attorney General's it. review is viewed as more expeditious, and, but I don't think that... I mean, but it is a significant burden. If you read through the papers, as Justice Kennedy pointed out, 90 days it t takes to, to process uh, one of the, if that's a typical request. And if they have an emergency situation, they really have a well, difficult... Well, the, the city of New York case was done in 22 days. I do want to point that out. I mean, it's, it's, we do have a responsibility to be cautious in this area as to what is or is not a change affecting voting. I mean, our position is that 7 and 8 on their face do admit of the possibility that there is a change affecting voting, and it's yeah. possible to see situations where it could be implemented yeah. uh, in a discriminatory way. May I ask <laughs> you a jurisprudential question? Have, you having raised this jurisdictional issue, do you think it's permissible for this court to decide the ripeness issue without first deciding whether we have jurisdiction? I do. I think that uh, the, the, the appeal provision of Section 5, uh, which provides for a direct appeal to this court in any appeal, is quite different than, for example, the provisions in the old, uh, under the old three-judge district court, uh, the old three-judge district court statute, where a law of a state was uh, the constitutionality was drawn into question. I think that the perp that uh, under that old provision, the court had to engage in this very elaborate analysis about whether was the three-judge court really properly convened because did they have or did there have to be a three-judge court, and then if the, the the end result under that analysis was. Basically, if the three-judge district court ruled on any ground other than striking down the state statute or upholding it on the merits, then the case had to go back to the three-judge district court, really, and then taken back up to the Court of Appeals. I don't think Section 5 uh, provides for such a, an elaborate provision. I, I do think that the expedition of Section 5 uh, is a factor that indicates that the court can uh, resolve cases that were brought up to it directly. NAACP versus City of New York is the, is the, the, the leading case on this point, where in that case... Um, there was a motion to intervene 
I think in the uh, I think it was in a preclearance action in the in the District of Columbia District Court, and that the motion to intervene was denied. That case was brought directly up to this court, and this court said we can decide that. And I think this case is similar. Mr. Uh, Wilson, does the Attorney General have any provision for uh, taking immediate action to allow? partial implementation of a law like this pending its decision on uh, the preclearance request, for example, where the bankruptcy proceeding has been initiated and people are in the school district trying to seize assets and the kids can't go to school. Is, is there any provision for the Attorney General to come in and say, well, look, we're, we're considering this, but right now we're going to let you operate with the management team pending our resolution. I, I'm not aware that the Attorney General's guidelines are, have anything directly on that point. I mean, we can pre-clear parts of things, of course. And so if, for example, uh, you know, there were, there were a, a, if the state were planning to do two or three different things, say in several school districts, and there was an emergency in, in one, and we could, we could pre-clear we could we can do partial preclearance or we can say we think that this provision is preclear but we need to look a little more closely at another provision under which you are exercising exercising authority um so it there is and there is that possibility it, it's to me rather puzzling and, and somewhat ironic that you are urging uh, that the state of texas can proceed without any preclearance at all to implement a section seven plan uh when you have uh uh, gone through the preclearance procedure in the Wilmer Hutchinson district, uh, and you say, well, just, just go right ahead and, and, and take your chances, but you can't go into the United States District Court. It seems to me that the Justice Department would say, of course, go into the District Court, and we'll answer this question, yes or no, as to whether or not uh, Presley and Etowah applies to a Section 7 procedure. Well, I mean, I think that if, there is, if they're actually implementing it, then that is by far the preferred procedure to go into the, into the uh, three-judge court. That's the preferred procedure that Congress set up, and but I, I don't, I don't, I, I, I don't think it's correct to say that the state has no options. I mean, obviously, we prefer that a preclearance action be brought in the three judge district court, or that a submission be made to the attorney general. But just as the three, but in both, in in all those situations, I mean, we can't resolve all of these questions in advance before some actual implementation is 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 proposed. I mean, the that certainly, for the reasons I've explained, the three-judge district court can't do that because of Article Three concerns. And the Attorney General also, although the Attorney General may be able to pre-clear and often does pre-clear um, enabling legislation, uh, the Attorney General often has to wait until uh, some actual implementation of that is proposed before reviewing, before reviewing that on, on the merits and also even making a a, a considered determination as to whether it would be a change affecting voting. Uh, Mr. Wilson, you're working in the direction of ripeness, and time is finally. fleeting. Are you going to hit <laughs> yeah. ripeness directly? Yes. I, I mean, I think, in effect, the state has asked for an advisory opinion that if the commissioner of education at some point decides to appoint a, a master or a management team for a local school district, then that appointment would not be a change affecting voting. And I think it, it is significant that, as the state has acknowledged, that it's their policy that when a school district does have performance problems, the commissioner tries to resolve those problems through less intrusive sanctions. And we don't know that in the now or in the imminent future, the commissioner will ever need to go so far as to reach 
the sanctions under Section 7 and 8. I mean, but we know what happened once. So we why can't happened. they just amend the thing and said, look, it happened to us once, and we want right. assurance that it will never happen again? I, I, I think that Rennie versus Geary is actually fairly clear that that does not, fact does not change either the analysis or the result. That 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 controversy was moot before this complaint was filed. May I ask you one question that kind of troubles me about the, the, your, your position? The question, it seems to me the question whether the appointment of management team or a master is, affects voting depends on what the management team or the master does. Exercising for some, some of them, it seems to me, some of the things they do clearly would not affect voting. Others would. So I'm not sure you're going to have the ripeness the way you've described it until not only the management team has been appointed, but also there's some idea of what the management team proposes to do that the school board itself would not have done. I think, well, one thing is that under the Texas law, when the commissioner of education appoints a master or a management team, he is supposed to delineate the powers of the, of the, of the master or the management team. Now, I agree we don't necessarily know every single thing that that master or management team might do, but I think we will have a much better idea when that happens of what are the totality of the powers that that might be exercised now they're all going right. to be the totality set forth in the statute I think right but I think that I mean we may I mean we may have at that point we and the district court may have questions I mean that the face of the statute I think this lends itself to some rather evident questions for example the statute says uh, well the master of the management team may not adopt a budget that is different from the one adopted the school board but it also says that the master of the management team may direct the trustees to take any action. Well, may the master of the management team, although he can't, ad- they, he or they, or she can't adopt the budget himself, can they tell the district court, we don't like your, uh, tell the school district, we don't like your budget, do a new one? And what happens, uh, you know, is that is that anticipated? I mean, can, there are... Can we be more specific? Yeah. Could, could you give us, for example, uh, an example uh, of an act that might be taken under appropriate instructions, under 7 and 8, that would not go so far as 9 and 10, but which would affect voting? Because your I brother, think, in right. effect, is saying I, there's no such thing. Right. I, think yeah. that the, I think that it's possible that a commission, the commissioner might give the master the full authority on the face of the statute. And under that situation, you might have a situation which... But, the, but not authority right. that would go so far as 9 and 10. Right, but right. still, you might have... Still, I mean, the, well, under 9, for example, the... the, the Board of managers can just say, I'm going to do a new budget. You know, I don't care what, you know, what the school district's old budget said. Now, but I think under, under eight or under seven or eight, he has, he may have in effect the same power, although it has to be, ex- or almost the same power, although it's exercised in a different way. I think it's important to note. Well, give me, state, how, do, how does it work? Let's, you're talking about budgets. Right. Can you give me a budget hypothesis that would, state the, the that would not district, go so far as nine and the ten? The school district would? has a budget. And the master or the management team takes a look at it and says, you know, I don't like this budget. I think that you, ha- you have to completely rewrite it. You have to make it 20% less, reallocate, uh, you know, less on building schools and more on uh, teacher training and school books. And uh, if you don't, and, and so you just take this back and write a new budget. I think that that is probably, that we would think that is a de facto replacement uh, along with all the other powers because even though... The school district... Is it any way that it would be a de facto replacement in a way that would implicate the discriminatory concerns of, of it Section could, it, 5? It could. I mean, I, I do want to say oh, just oh. because it's a... Well, I, I do want to say just because it's a de facto replacement doesn't mean it does. I mean, it may, right. it may may be perfectly okay. 
But I do think there are situations, for example, suppose that because of demographic changes, a school district for the first time becomes uh, majority Hispanic or majority or black or substantial minority such that Hispanics and blacks can for the first time influence who the, influence the election of, the, of, the, of their elected officials. And then all of a sudden, the commissioner decides to implement, you know, decides we don't like that. You know, I'm not, uh, you know, we want to have an appointee who's responsible to the commissioner. Uh, now, I'm not saying that has happened or will happen, but, but there are... So you're saying the choice of educational policy reflected in a budget can also be a reflection uh, of, of, uh, of, of racial composition, and if you affect that, then it is a voting change. It is a, is a de facto it, replacement that would be covered by five. That's that, your argument? I think that the budget reflects, you know, among other things, reflects the entire policy that the school board, the elected school board wants. And that's what people elect. When people elect a school board, they, they elect them in order to ta- make various uh, policy judgments, some of which are reflected in a budget. And... Uh, The master may disagree. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Wilson. The case is submitted.